All right, welcome back to the Fully Express podcast. I'm your host, Christina Roland, and this is where we explore what it looks like to live your most fully expressed life. Today, I'm so excited to introduce you to my guest, Jeff Mount. Jeff is a coach, a writer, and a storyteller. I have been in the presence of this man many a time, and he has exactly that, a presence. But it is a presence that brings so many different aspects to it. There's so much heart, there's so much power, there's so much love, there's so much truth, there's so much sand. Every single piece that you can even imagine, Jeff brings to the table. And every time you're with him, he reveals a different aspect of his heart. And it's so beautiful and such a gift to be with every time. So I'm so excited for you all to hear from this man. Welcome to the podcast, Jeff. Thank you so much. That, man, that's overwhelming, but thank you. (laughs) Tell us a little bit about yourself, who you are, what you do, and how you got to this point. Sure. Um, so yeah, I grew up, um, in central Maryland outside of DC kind of average, um, suburban life from the outside, but, um, always had growing up this dichotomy of a real pressure to perform, which I was actually really good at. And then a real desire to sort of be on my own with my imagination in my head. And, um, it was really interesting. This kind of encapsulates my my upbringing a lot is um, only a few years ago, I had a mentor of mine tell me that it was fairly obvious to him that I was an introvert. And that was a huge revelation because I've always been valued for what I do in front of people, whether it was music or sports or speaking or, you know, leading organizations, whether it's, you know, whether it's formally in some sort of leadership role or just um, being the person that has the pressure to be the standout when what I found um, that really connected with, with, you know, growing up was that I thrive when I'm taking massive amounts of time alone. So let's see, graduated high school, went to university of Maryland, um, studied ancient studies and philosophy very much thought I was going to get into full-time academia as a, as a scholar of the ancient world and philosophy and theology and just the, you know, sort of the history of ideas and how they shifted and what history has to tell us. So, um, but in grad school, I reconnected with martial arts as a big part of my life. I had grown up doing different martial arts and that was a big part of my upbringing and I reconnected in my early 20s with a, um, a discipline called Krav Maga, which is from Israel. And it's a little bit more practical, a little bit more reality-based than a lot of martial arts out there. And within about a year, I had actually been working with a police officer who used a technique that I taught him in real life. And this big, strong, former football player police officer came back to me and said, Jeff, I think you saved my life. Right. So that was a really interesting pivot point because at that point I had already been really disillusioned with academia and was like, can I really make it through the master's and PhD and all the politics and all the writing and all of the sort of self-importance that can surround academia. Um, And, you know, it just took this police officer telling me that I taught him something that got him home safe, completely revitalized um, 
my sense of what I had to offer the world. And so that led to a 15 year career teaching self-defense, teaching military, teaching law enforcement, teaching women and men who um, were in the process of putting their lives back together after being attacked. I worked with a lot of survivors of violent crime. And um, that was what I was known for throughout most of my 20s and pretty much all of my 30s was I was the chief instructor of Krav Maga Maryland. Um, And the way that I pivoted towards coaching is I had a tendency to sort of outpace whatever mentorship I was receiving. And so after a while, I felt I was in a great leadership position. I was mentoring a lot of younger instructors. I was running four different gyms. I was doing a lot of government contracting and I was doing good work, but I was sort of missing that mentor role. So I had found one of my instructors from Krav Maga Worldwide. Um, and I were talking about how, you know, your mentors sometimes just fade away and then you find you're kind of alone as a professional. And I was talking about all the ways that I had felt like I had plateaued and I wasn't sure if I should take on this project or that project to challenge myself. And he just looks at me and says, um, you know, I became a life coach last year. I was like, no. And I could tell that there was something different and revitalized and reinvigorated within him. So I ended up hiring him as a life coach and working with him as a client. He was my coach for three years. And there was just so much fruit that came from that as a a coaching client, man, that I returned to, I reconnected with um, becoming a dog person again. I opened a new gym in another part of uh, the region. I climbed Mount Kilimanjaro. I had all of these different things and I was just sort of spouting out um, just, how can I put it? Just really, really invigorating projects and goals. And um, was still leading uh, the self-defense training programs at that time um, and mentoring a lot of instructors. And uh, there was a real push for me to become a coach at that point. And that was about 2017. And um, some part of me held back. And I didn't know at the time what was holding back. But throughout my coaching, I realized I was creating all this massive stuff. I was having tremendous impact on my staff and the world around me. And I was doing a lot of good work, but some part of me couldn't enjoy it. And the impact and the power and the value of what I was doing as it was reflected to me by others and the way that I experienced it kind of on the inside, there was a huge disconnect. So working with my coach on that, um, I kind of came to realize that I had a lot of childhood stuff that I needed to address in trauma therapy. And it was, it was very acute, very severe trauma that I had just sort of outperformed. And uh, I think my way of coping with trauma is just um, society really rewards the way that I respond to my own brokenness. <laughs> and I felt like I had this a very hyper-confident, hyper, uh, hyper-productive, um, you know, producer and performer and communicator. And um, inside, I felt seven most of the time and not a, not a happy-go-lucky fun seven, but like a scared, terrified weight of the world on a shoulder seven-year-old. So um, through the coaching and just through this deep dissatisfaction with what was going on, I went back to therapy and 
really recovered a lot of the parts of my heart that I had given away in order to compartmentalize and block out um, some, you know, really awful things that had happened to me and, um, and some damaging things that I did with that. So then when I had gotten deep into the healing work of my own recovery, uh, coaching came back around and it was just like, I couldn't say no. And that was the next challenge. And so I don't relate to myself as this really elite coach. I feel very new and I feel excited by the newness of this career where I'm working with uh, people one-on-one -on -one in their dreams, both men and women, and, um, and you know, tapping back into my passion for writing and storytelling as the other two pieces, which I never had the bandwidth to figure out what to do with while I was running businesses and you know, basically being part entrepreneur, part mentor, you know, part physical coach. There was a part of me that had to be a professional athlete. There was a part of me that had to vibe with uh, full-time active duty military and law enforcement guys and in the tactical world and learning that whole, you know, system. <laughs> and um, so now there's parts of me uh, that are emerging that I'm still just discovering, that I'm still discovering, and they tend towards the more emotionally intelligent and more creative um, side. So that's my story, but I'm still kind of, it's like, I don't know all the things that come next. I know that I am super fulfilled working with clients. And uh, the big thing that I knew is um, when I recovered writing as a passion again, that it wasn't it wasn't something that I had to do as a part of this performance-based approval process that I was very deeply trained in as a kid. It, um, instead, it was something that came spontaneously, like I couldn't not. And so I'm at a place where, um, where I feel pretty well connected with myself and just excited to see what emerges next. So good. So good. I wrote so many notes while you were talking. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, first and foremost, I had no idea that I was in the presence of a fellow Turk. I don't think oh, we've ever yeah, talked yeah, about this. That's yeah. the funny thing that I see that like happens when you're friends with coaches. We get yeah. into that deep conversation so quickly that I don't know basic facts about life. Right. 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 Well, we're trained in that that distinction between reporting and distinguished sharing. And, um, you know, sometimes there's just fun little details that don't have this super impactful meaning, but they're they're nice to know. And they're little connection points. Right. So. Yeah. <laughs> for sure. So funny. Yeah. Well, awesome. Yeah. Hello, Terp in the house. OK, cool. Mm -hmm. uh, I love the journey that you described and. I thought it was really cool how for you uh, coaching was also an access point to therapy because I often do get a quest the question like which one should I be doing right and it really does just depend on where you are in your journey right um, and I have both and I'll probably have both forever <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah. but I I love that I love that that's so cool so you had incredible language you just like you said similar things a few different ways and I just want to point them out because they it was so powerful to me and so poignant to me um first you said I've always been valued for what I do in front of people that's so big that's so big 
And then you also said it in the way of society really rewards the way that I respond to my own brokenness. Right. And I don't think that we talk enough about that in our culture. Right. Like we look at people who are high performers, who are successful, who seem really confident. And we just assume that that's from a place of healthiness and self-love when most of the time it isn't. Yeah, yeah. Can you speak a little bit more to how you were really able to see that? I know obviously therapy and coaching played a part, but. Well, for one thing, um, what I found for myself because I've experienced a lot of like organic and I would say healthy and authentic success as well. Sure. Um, and I'm still in process, but one, maybe an indicator, it's not a foolproof test, but one indicator is when I do something that I get praised for is my primary response, gratitude or anxiety. And what I mean by that is when I have accomplished something from a deep place of wholeness, and a deep place of life and like, hey, I'm already loved. I already belong in this world. I already am complete as a person. Now, what do I want to go do with that? And then I create something cool. The primary response that I experience is gratitude. When I am trying to fill an empty part of myself with performance or accomplishment or success, and I get the praise back because people see the accomplishment and they see the success. And sometimes they're excited and sometimes they're envious. And sometimes they're, you know, they get weird about it because we get weird about other people's success sometimes. Um, if I'm filling an empty hole within myself, my primary response is how long can I keep the charade up? And so there's pressure to do it again and again, and again, and again, because the moment that I stop performing, the moment that I stop succeeding or accomplishing, um, then all of that way that I sort of filled myself up as a person dribbles out the bottom and then I'm empty again. And so then you really have to be with yourself and you have to be with the empty parts of yourself, which is for me, incredibly scary. And part of the reason why I got so good at accomplishing and performing and succeeding and overachieving was to never let anyone see those empty parts. Um, and so for me, yeah, I think whenever I experience success as pressure, it's like, what am I expecting this to do that it can't really do? And then whenever I experience it as just pure celebration and joy, and I can like really sit in the accomplishment um, and, and almost like be quiet with it. Then I'm like, okay, yeah, this is, this is coming from me because I was never expecting it to tell me who I was. I already knew who I was. And then from place of knowing did the thing <laughs> that, you know, and what's really interesting is I have the same type of sort of pride or excitement or satisfaction when I do a thing that for me is hard but doesn't get all the praise, doesn't get all the accolades. It's like the, the peace and that satisfaction, that gratitude is the same when I know I'm doing right by myself, you know? Um, and, and, and so it's not, it's not that praise or accolades or attention for your accomplishments is bad, but there is a level of disconnect where 
it can stand on its own and it doesn't need the praise in order to be valuable. And that's, that's a huge shift for me because there was a time probably in my, any, any time in my twenties and to some degree in my early thirties, I would have told you that was impossible. I would have told you that you cannot accomplish anything valuable without other people noticing. And if people notice and they affirm it, then it's good. And if people don't notice and don't affirm it, some deep part of me equated other people's praise with the value itself. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for that. Yeah. So I heard that like your anxiety response, you said, you know, it's either gratitude or anxiety. And that's kind of how you gauge um, where it's coming from. And that your specific anxiety response is like, okay, well, how long can I keep this charade going? This is, this is going to crumble. People will see that I'm a fraud or, or I need to keep going in order to keep it up. Right. And I think that another version that a lot of people have is also, um, just the what's next. Right. Right. Cause it can also feel like okay, that good gratitude at the beginning, but then after a day or two, it's like, well, where do I go from here? Like, how do I stop myself? And I've been talking to a lot of men recently about how there is that, um, finish line that keeps getting farther and farther away. Right. That success, like they don't even know what it would look like, Right. (laughs) but that is what they're chasing. Right. Yeah. Awesome. Um, I love how you phrase that too. When I, I, when I know I'm doing right by myself, mm-hmm. because I think that that's something that also isn't talked about, whether it's out loud or it's in private, mm-hmm. the idea that you and your needs and being in alignment with who you are and who you want to be in the world. Yeah. Like first and foremost, what you should be doing is not taught to us. <laughs> right. 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 Yeah. And it's, um, it shows up differently sometimes um, for men than it does for women because there really is a, um, almost like an addiction to suffering mm. that, that, that there are times where I look back at stages of my own life, where I feel like I was in a contest with the people I was surrounded by to see who could neglect themselves the most. Yes. And it's so crazy because none of us would cop to it at the time, you know? Um, But yeah, whether it's, and and, and it shows up in the basics, like uh, lack of sleep, Um, how much further past your comfort zone did you push yourself in a workout? Or, you know, how little time to yourself have you had? And sometimes people sounded like they were complaining, but then if it was anything like what I was experiencing internally, at some point it's bragging and you're bragging about, you're bragging about self-neglect. You're bragging about uh, how hard you've made your life to be. And the gauge of that is, is, is how many of your needs are going unmet. And I found oftentimes it was much more scary. It was much more terrifying for me to allow my needs to be met by the important people in my life, first and foremost, myself. And that, that, that 
that the realm of self-neglect was very much the realm of the familiar. And that I was able to engineer a very predictable, miserable, but predictable life experience through self-neglect, because then you know how you're going to show up at work. You know what your time off is going to look like. You know what your relationships are going to look like. You know what your financial situation will look like. But if it's all driven by self-neglect um, and deprivation and withholding from self, then you can engineer a very predictable life. Um, the problem is, is that then uh, it's predictable in its monotony, it's predictable in its suffering. <laughs> and um, it's predictable in the way that you have to almost abandon yourself or fracture from yourself. So, so for me, like, I just had these several moments where I realized like the way that I was making myself miserable, um, society rewards, and I was no longer having any of it because I just, it was almost like I wasn't the, the, whatever pride I could have in what I was doing, whether it was entrepreneurially or financially or physically or relationally, it, it wasn't something, it wasn't fulfilling. I don't know how else to say it. Yeah, absolutely. Bragging about self-neglect, that is such a such a thing yeah. <laughs> yeah. and and in men for sure yeah. that idea of like who's busier and who who's gone harder in the gym like right had less sleep I totally yeah I totally acknowledge that and there's this this underlying sense that it's also somehow noble yeah <laughs> yeah yeah. And, and what's funny is people don't bring that to me anymore because like I've started to confront it. And so I was like, wait, there's nothing cool about that. Like, there's nothing cool about like, like sounds like you're really suffering. And, and even just like, like notice, noticing, noticing it's like, oh, well, what are you covering up that you don't want to look at or be with by constantly being at a, at a lack, by constantly being at a deficit? I, you know, before we hit record, I was telling you a little about, about the Scotland trip and especially when I would travel and especially when I was traveling for some type of self-development, you know, traveling is exhausting, right? So it's on a transcontinental flight. I get to, I get to Glasgow and I, um, enterprise does not have a car for me. I had a reservation, but they don't have a car for me. Something happened to the one they were going to give me. So I have to go get another one. And I'm driving to my Airbnb that was about four hours North and I was feeling this old familiar push pull of like, oh no, you have to go do the enlightened thing and you have to go do the mystical sort of spiritual thing of go out on the mountains and take pictures and just be fully present and meditate and journal and like do all the things that, yeah, that's internal work, but it's still work. Mm -hmm. And in the past, I would have felt like that was the obligation. Like I hit the you know, boots on the ground and I have to go out into the wilderness and and get to the work of becoming enlightened, whatever that means, which by the way, it's a standard that you can't meet because it's not designed to be met, it's designed to inflict self-judgment. And this time, for whatever reason, I was like, my number one job is to recover from the hellacious jet lag I just inflicted on myself. Like my job right now, if I wanna get what I'm looking to get out of this trip, is I need to, as quickly as possible, 
find my bed and sleep. Yes. (laughs) Brand new, brand new, never done it before. And I was kind of catching myself feeling guilty about wanting to sleep as soon as possible when I had just been up for two and a half days straight. (laughs) What kind of insane psycho am I? (laughs) I'm like (laughs) withholding sleep in service of what? Like a good Instagram post? Like, like, like that's not where transformation doesn't need to occur at that moment. So you know, I'm not there yet, <laughs> I guess is what I'm trying to say. No, I feel that so hard because, the, yeah, I think that's such a good point because I'm, I'm the same way. I literally just had this discussion with someone the other day where like, I beat myself up for feeling like I don't work as many hours as like the traditional person does. But then I had to, I had to like actively say out loud to her, I was like, but wait, like, everything I do to work on myself, like journaling, meditating, meeting with my three different like coach counselors a week, like doing all these different things that I implement to like better myself is work because it's, it's part of who I need to be and able to show up to my work. Right. And (laughs) I actually had an experience just last night and this morning, similar to what you're talking about. You know, I wasn't on a transatlantic, transatlantic flight, but like I'm home in DC for the week. My father's funeral is this weekend. And I just drove from Chicago to DC and I've just had a lot going on. And, um, I, I have the same tendency to like push through. And I always like to mention that, you know, people think of masculine and feminine as being male and female, but really masculine and feminine are just energies and ways of being. And so I tend to, to, uh, tap into my masculine a lot more easily. And my masculine will always be like, just push through and like five hours of sleep is enough. And like, you got to do it. Like you still got to get up and you got to get that workout and you got to meditate, you got to journal, you got to get all this ready. Like all this stuff that I told myself that I had to do. And last night I was in bed and I like, couldn't fall asleep because you know, even just a one hour time difference is like still a one hour time difference. Right. And I couldn't fall asleep and I had signed up for an early morning workout this morning to get me up and going to do all this stuff before our session right now, a session I had before this. And I was laying in bed and I was like, I don't have to do that. (laughs) I literally like said to myself, I'm like, is it worth me getting up and not sleeping a lot? And probably not having a lot of like physical energy throughout the day. And like, I can perform still, right? Like I've got, I've gotten good at that. (laughs) Yeah. But will I actually feel good? And like, do I, am I choosing that from a place of, because don't get me wrong. I truly believe in self-discipline and following through on what you say as a form of self-love, but am I choosing that from self-love or am I choosing that from that automatic of like, let's push through, let's do all these things because I need to say I did them. Right. Right. So I canceled my glass last night and I slept in this morning and I didn't get all the time that I needed this morning to like do things like journal, meditate, work out. But another part of it is like learning trust, right? Like to trust myself that like, I don't have to do those things in order for us to have an amazing conversation. Like I am who I am already. (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So there's so much rich in what you just shared. Like, well, for one, I love the masculine feminine energies because for 15 years, 
I essentially taught people how to fight, right? Not sport martial arts, not compete, but like fight for their lives, you know, gun to your head, somebody breaks in your house, like worst day of your life, all hell is broken, breaking loose. And it was really interesting. Um, the women that engaged with it and then the women that didn't engage with it and no judgment if that's not your cup of tea because there were many people who are like I'm not interested in in doing that activity it's like oh no that's cool and that's actually quite easy to respect I get sick of it too no problem but it was interesting when people jumped in with like I can't right and usually it was for women, I can't because I'm a woman and fighting is a masculine thing. Mm. And for men, there was, I'm, I'm not going to do it because this is going to reveal something about myself that's not as masculine as it should be. Like, like, like it's somehow a personal failure that this isn't something that you take too naturally. And it was really tough um, because I... I, I, I like that I'm in touch with my emotions. I like that I cry easily. I like that I have emotional and relational conversations. And so <clears throat> I always kind of, I always kind of was fascinated by, you know, and you can't tell on zoom, but I'm six, five, I'm 275. I'm huge. I'm physically huge. And to see me in front of a room full of people, like kick or punch a pad or take a, training gun away or basically just physically explode with, you know, violence and then talk about feelings and then talk about well-being and talk about self-worth and talk about value. It's like, like people would pump this hyper-conventional masculine, um, superficial stereotype of me. And they would see me as this like masculine energy wrecking ball. Right. (laughs) And And it was weird what people valued about me because they were like, oh yeah, Jeff's the guy that you want behind you in a dark alley. And I'm like, yeah, but like, you know, where's the poetry in your life? And where's the beauty? And where's the this? Where's the that? And it was funny because I I actually do think over the years, I burned a lot of bridges and it it was interesting. I had mentioned that, you know, I worked a lot with military and law enforcement folks and I looked at, um, I looked at those careers for a long time in my late twenties and I decided not to go that route because I felt like I would have to sacrifice something about myself that I really like, and it's not conventionally masculine. <laughs> and, um, it's always interesting, especially when they're like only men in a room and all the men do tough things. They're all crossfitters and they shoot guns and climb mountains and jump in and out of helicopters and vehicles. And we're all badasses. It's like, yeah, cool. All right. We're all tough. We're all like, whatever, ready to go to war. Fine. And then I ask about someone's daughter or I ask about someone's artistic, you know, or I ask about what book they're reading. It's always nonfiction. It's always a leadership development book. It's like, come on. Have you ever used your imagination? Do you read fiction? Like, is it like, you know, um, and I really found myself to be fairly isolated in a lot of room full of only men. Now, the interesting thing was, is Krav Maga Maryland had a reputation under my leadership for having a huge, both quantitatively and qualitatively, a huge cadre of female instructors 
And so like women who are tapping into their strength and not in an abstract fashion, but like literally learning how hard they can punch and kick, literally learning how much weight they can move, literally learning how loud their voice can be. And not just in a corporate environment or during a PowerPoint presentation, but when your life is on the line and women discovering, and like, that's one of the things that I'm always going to be the proudest of. It's one of the things that I feel like it is that I, I, one of the things that I know was most authentic and most um, value about my leadership in that realm is I did not make carbon copies of myself. Um, again, physically big, physically loud, powerful, physically powerful, um, really articulate, and yet had a ton of instructors that were nothing like me. Mm. And they could reach people I couldn't reach. These female instructors who are no less feminine, <laughs> but that their energy is, um, that, that there's just a power in a physically smaller person exuding the same type of energy. And it's a mystery to me. So I feel like I'm, I feel like I'm claiming to understand something that I don't really understand, but that I've witnessed. And it's just so exciting. And it's like the world, the world needs people in touch with their strength. The world needs people in touch with their power. And, um, and I think that's part of the reason why it felt so natural to become a coach was because it was a different venue for the same work. Um, but it doesn't surprise me when you're saying like, oh yeah, you know, I kind of tap into that masculine energy to power through and self-sacrifice and to like, like, like aggressively override what a deeper, wiser. So I'm getting into uh, Dr. Martin Shaw and he's a storyteller out of the UK. And one of the things that he's pointed to as an academic is the role of like the old woman in fairy tales. She is always the wisest, mm. never a man. Mm. It's never an old king or a, but it's always a woman who can speak wisdom to both men and women that are lost that are in the wilderness that have taken their licks and haven't quite figured out how to heal yet. Um, and, you know, he kind of says, he was like, if you don't see yourself in this, regardless of gender and roles and everything, he's like, you're, you're reading it way too literally, like put your heart eyes on and like, put your, put your myth, like listen with your mythical ear rather than just with your logical ear. And that's been so good for me. Um, because it's such a check and a counterbalance to where I want to retreat to, which is that aggressive. It doesn't look like a retreat. It looks like an attack, but it is a retreat because mm -hmm. it's a retreat to a less authentic way of being. Um, I have found that when I'm harder on myself, I'm harder on other people. And so I notice when I start to get judgy of other people's, you know, where, where I'm out of touch with compassion, it's like, yep, I'm, I'm starting to slip into that little bit of violence towards self again, which then is a little bit of sort of emotional violence towards others where I can't just let everyone be right where they are all the time. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Again, so much gold in everything that you said. I really want to point out what you said of the world needs people in touch with their strength. 
And that can look like so many things, right? But again, I want to emphasize for those listening, because I think that this is a new conversation for so many people where again, masculine and feminine has gotten conflated with male and female. And that somehow the connotation also is that like masculine slash male good, feminine slash female bad, or like lesser than, Right. right? And so as it's expressed in the areas that you've worked in, like in martial arts, uh, emphasizing like people being tapped into their strength, that actually is a masculine energetic trait, but it's not only for men, right? (laughs) Like, so as you talked about, like you have these women who are coming in who are able to be so strong and so tapped into their strength and able to bring that to other people too. So I want to clarify for people that like strength actually is associated with masculine energy, but that doesn't mean it's reserved for men. Right. (laughs) Right. Uh, Because I think it's just so important to continue to have these conversations where we dissect that because there is, again, this connotation that feminine is weaker, lesser than like all the things. Um, And that does not mean women are. Um, And I'm curious, you know, as someone who has spent so much time uh, around masculine energy, whether it be from male or female, um, but you also mentioned specifically men who... Uh, deny parts of themselves and abandon parts of themselves in order to be in really hyper-masculine spaces and careers. Um, I'm curious what you see or what you believe personally is like some both benefits and uh, issues with like being super attached to a masculine ideal. Yeah, yeah. And, And this is where I've really benefited from a lot of um, other content you've put out there because it's made me really consider that my assumptions about my masculine identity go deeper than I think they do. And when I say assumptions, it's like they're they're not bad, but left unchecked, they can become a blind spot, right? Um, so ask it again because it's such a great, rich question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, as someone who's been in a lot of masculine spaces, what do you see are the benefits and maybe problems or gaps um, in in such a um, in holding on to such strict masculine ideals? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so <clears throat> one of the things that immediately pops up is um, there always has to be an adversary. There always has to be an enemy. There always has to be a fight. And if there isn't one naturally, they're going to make one. Mm. And by they, I mean, whoever might be sort of trapped in the masculine energy such that they can't get out. (laughs) Like, um, and particularly if men who skew masculine in their energy, but are also dedicated in valuing the healing work, um, the place that you find the disconnect is usually as a very young boy. And one of the things that being steeped in masculine, like almost like a warrior culture, yeah, is that there's very little, if any, breathable space for the child, right? 
Um, so <laughs> that, that is where I see a lot of people like that's the no-go zone for your stereotypical, you know, masculine man and women who have more of a masculine energy don't want to go there either is that there's very little space for play or imagination. Um, those things are just not valued because they are liabilities. If you see your life as a fight, there's no space for play. If you see yourself as a warrior constantly seeking out a battle to fight, then imagination is, is not, um, it's not so useful, yeah. but that's only if you have start with the assumption of the battle to fight. So one of the things that I'm thinking a lot for myself, is, um, like creative energy versus destructive energy. And I say versus, but, um, it has been helpful for me to take it out of the realm of gender altogether um, because interestingly enough, in other languages, prepubescent kids don't have a gender assigned linguistically, like languages that speak, languages that have masculine and feminine words, usually when they're talking about small prepubescent children, it's neutral. And that doesn't mean that young girls and young boys can't express a variety of gender traits and gender values and gender energy and all of those things, but that it's not, it's not the definitive thing. And so you kind of have to go there to get to where a lot of these wounds were originally struck. And, um, and I would say usually the more powerfully masculine a person is male or female or right. Like the, the harder time they have accessing child. And I would love to point out that, interestingly enough, when we do encourage children to play, mm -hmm. specifically boys, it has to look like one thing. That imagination, that play includes what you just said, like having an enemy. It's usually like trucks. Are you like beating another truck up? Are you racing <laughs> another truck? Are you playing with a gun? Are you playing with GI Joe? Are you playing with things that are naturally destructive and like and so it's like even limited to the imagination of a child is even encouraged to be limited to the idea of like you have an enemy that you're supposed to go after right and that's just exhausting yeah <laughs> you know so so you know now here here's the other thing and and this is where this is where some of the public discourse loses me. There are times where that masculine energy is exactly what you need. Oh, for sure. For sure. Absolutely. Nobody wants to talk. No, I don't want to say nobody wants to talk about that is we have not in the public discourse created a container to talk about that in positive terms. Right. Um, everyone knows where it doesn't belong. And sometimes like, <clears throat> so that's that's something I'm saying. Well, we all still have work to do. Is like so when a, when a very masculine man who is steeped in masculine culture and everything like that, when all the values and all of the perspectives that that contains is exactly what's needed. 
how can we honor that? And then when it's not time to be in that space anymore, how do we disengage? Particularly, how do we give men permission to disengage from the hyper-masculine, you know? I mean, even just, yeah, the, the, the energy, like I know a lot of men who cannot sit still. Yeah. I know far fewer women who cannot sit still. And it's because like, there's something shameful or wrong mm-hmm. with sitting still. Yeah. Well, I think that ties back to what you said at the beginning where you're like, um, at the beginning of this question where you said, you know, there always has to be an enemy or a fight. And if there isn't one, naturally they will create one. Right. And the enemy ends up being that stillness, that being with yourself even, um, that, I mean, it's why people like procrastinate because you're creating an own enemy within yourself, right? It's like that whole self-sabotage thing. Um, But yeah, going back to what you just said, how do we allow for men to be celebrated in their masculinity in the appropriate spaces and times, and then also give them permission to be whoever they want whenever they want to be, basically? Uh, and that's exactly why I'm having this podcast, right? Because I think that it is about dissecting that language and dissecting the connotations behind it. Because again, I do think that there is this idea subliminally throughout our culture that masculine, good, feminine, bad, or if not good and bad, then stronger, weaker, right? And men want to be associated with something good or stronger, right? So how do we shift that narrative in order to give people just permission to be who they are? Really? Yeah. Well, somebody pointed out to me at one point, um, when you look at Disney cartoons mm-hmm. and you look at the male protagonists and all of the male um energy that they're masculine energy they're putting out there they're physically strong imposing loud capable everything like that and then you look at the male villains and there's a lot of conventionally feminine traits that are presented and it's like what kind of vilification is going on there when in order for uh you know essentially a fairy tale to sell <laughs> that you're, that you're typecasting and like one is good and one is bad, you know? And, um, yeah, that fascinated the first time somebody pointed that out to me. It's like, what do we do with that? Because most of the villains that I would characterize as true villains in real life, you know, like I've had dozens of women who are being abused and having their lives threatened come into my office and sit down and expect me to be a part of the solution. It's like the villain in the story, quote unquote, and I know I'm like playing fast and loose with a lot of ethical judgments, but whatever, we'll go with it for now is usually, yeah, it's, it's, it's masculine energy gone wrong or gone, you know, like where it's oppressive and victimizing and dominating and those types of things. Um, so like, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of in a head spin. And I, I, I think my only conviction that I know is that, is that I cannot run around fixing other people or other institutions or other 
sectors of society if I'm not willing to do the bulk of the work on myself. And I think that's something that I wish more men took seriously (laughs) is that is that you can do all the amazing praiseworthy work in the world. And if you haven't done the work on yourself at best, you're going to be dissatisfied with the work that you've done. And at worst, you're not going to actually be able to represent because you're not drawing on the full strength of everything that you have to offer. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I totally agree that it does start with individual responsibility and healing. And like you said earlier, you know, in relationship to what I talk about in my posts, it's like most people don't actually realize how much this is in their lives, right? Like how masculinity and these ideals of conventional masculinity is in everything that they do. Right. And so most people will be like, oh, I'm fine. Like, you know, I'm like I like girly things. And they right, <laughs> right, think right. it's like, that's enough. And it's like, no, we have a lot of stuff to unpack here. A lot of stuff to unpack here. Yeah. Um, but in relationship to that, you know, you mostly went into um, some of the issues with masculinity. And we did identify that neither of us see masculine as being good or good or bad really but I do want to emphasize like what do you see are like some of the most amazing beautiful things about masculinity because I actually find that men especially with like the rhetoric out there today and I get it a lot of women are fed up with things I get it and although men have a lot of power in the world they are very rarely celebrated and that celebration of masculinity can actually lead to a lot of healing so I'm really curious, like what you would say are some really positive aspects. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's that's good. I was aware of it. And then I kind of got um, <laughs> trailed <laughs> off because the, uh, I feel like I have a unique perspective to see the issues because um, nobody, nobody pointed them out as issues. But I do think that um, that when you get a group of men who are conventionally strong and capable, they don't have to be, they don't, it doesn't need to be a warrior culture per se, but just let's say out in the wilderness. And <clears throat> I think the process of initiation, when you have an older man who is tried and tested and says to a younger man, your strength and your masculine energy is fundamentally good powerful be careful but it's fundamentally good and um when you have the capacity to be initiated into the company of other men i think something really beautiful happens because then there is no there is no oh i've got a balance between vulnerability and strength it's like that balance finds itself naturally um and so it really does happen when masculine love is shared among men when, when there can be, when basically, I guess the best way to say it is when men receive the fathering that they're missing Mm -hmm. is when, when, when you hear that, I'm proud of you. When you hear that, like basically when it's modeled, right. Then strength can be something that deepens your, it can be a way of getting to know yourself. So like the weight room doesn't become 
a battleground to fight, to prove, and to aggressively, you know, smash the record, it can become a place where you go inward and you find more about yourself. And then the wilderness can do the same thing. Fighting can do the same thing. And, you know, any type of masculine energy type of activity can be a place to cultivate a deeper knowledge and intimacy with oneself. That only tends to happen when that space is made safe by older men. And so I do think that part of the crisis of masculinity that our culture is experiencing is that older men don't know how to give that, younger men don't know how to receive that. And so then there's just this disconnect where the, where the mantle is not being passed. And that's where I really hurt for men and where I also see that, um, that a lot of really powerful good could be unleashed through relational connection men's relational connection with each other. Yeah. And what would be like the fruit of that relational connection and that good? What does that actually look like? What I think it does is I think it baptizes masculine strength to make it no longer a threat to the lesser, to the, you know, the perceived lesser, right? So like what it does is it quiets down almost entirely an insecure man's need to dominate an insecure man's need to conquer the fight. And when they know that they are safe, when a man in his masculine strength knows that he's safe and accepted and, and that, that something sacred has been passed on from an older generation of man, then my opinion, and I don't have a lot of like, <laughs> uh, it's more of like an intuitive sense that I have is that the things that make men dangerous and, and, and destructive tends to quiet down. Um, and so the fruit, of, the fruit of that relational connection is that there's a place to put all that energy that's positive, that's life-affirming, and that is, um, that, is, that is connective rather than competitive. Yeah. 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 I hear that it's almost like then it becomes basically what we've been saying a lot throughout this. The fruit of that is allowing masculinity to exist in a way that it is not this automatic thing that you choose to access it, right? You choose to use it when it's necessary. You choose to employ it you choose to dominate conquer only if needed right. not from like a place of just oh i must do this <laughs> right well it becomes conscious and intentional but then also it's wedded to the innocence of of a very young child yeah right and so then recapturing that young child and integrating so if you look at a man who is conventionally strong but they are in touch with the young vulnerable innocent powerless and it's okay <laughs> that there are those things as well, that there's somewhere in there, they also can manifest um, that neutrality, innocence, play, and, um, and that they don't have to be on as a man with their masculine strength all the time, that they can let their guard down and that it's okay and it's safe. Um, because a lot of, a lot of, a lot of like broken 
paradigms of how people feel like they become a man is essentially the process of finding out that it's not okay to be a young child anymore. And like, you have to, you have to be done with that. And that plays out sexually. It plays out with alcohol. It plays out with violence. It plays out with, with, um, you know, hard work for the sake of breaking a person down, not hard work for the sake of creating something beautiful or valuable, but hard work for the sake of breaking, almost like breaking, breaking something. And, um, yeah, I physically cringe when I see like in media or movies, some type of broken initiation where somebody is learning that to be a man means to dominate, means to threaten, means to be violent, means to be um, aggressive. And it's just like, there's plenty of time for that. (laughs) Um, That, yeah, so. Yeah, wow, what you just said kind of blew me away that the process of becoming a man is essentially finding out that it's not okay to be a young child. Right. That is so huge. (laughs) Yeah, that is, wow. Yeah, because at the foundation of all of it, that aggression, that sexuality, that alcohol, whatever, however it's expressed in our culture, really the baseline of it is like, you're no longer a kid, you're no longer a boy, Mm -hmm. be a man, and this is how you show it. That's really powerful. Wow. So for any men out there, or really anybody, but anybody who's looking to create a more healthy relationship to their masculine energy Mm -hmm. um, and to explore these things, to start doing the healing work, what are some tools or suggestions that you have for people? Yeah. um, The first one is, I would say, every person, regardless of where they land on the spectrum, gender wise, and you know, where their energy is to, um, to take the risk to create. And so I think there's something in creativity. Um, you know, it could be music, it could be art, it could be, um, and, and again, you, you, you've, really, really insightfully pointed out that there, there's more masculine creative endeavors and there's less masculine creative endeavors. Like I'm going to build a house. Well, that requires a certain amount of creativity, but the creativity isn't the point. The point is to function and to survive and to caretake. And it's like, I would, I would encourage a man in particular whose creativity skews towards the physically demanding hard work to do something that's actually not like that. Um, you know, so that, that's the first thing I think, I think creativity and, and the more you can push into a softer type of creativity, um, what people would generally stereotypically can, um, uh, categorize as, as more feminine. I think you can develop facility with that. You'll get something back. The second thing is, um, and the second thing is to think, think reflectively about childhood and what parts of yourself are still present and what parts of yourself you felt compelled to completely abandon. Um, because I would say behind every, every violent man is a scared little kid that doesn't have a place to take that scared little kid. Um, and I don't know. I, I, like to me, it's kind of a balancing act. I mean, some sometimes what I would advise to some folks is to press into that masculine energy, to become friends with it, 
you know, start lifting weights or running or do, you know, physically engage with power. That's why I think everybody except for an oppressive tyrant needs to know what it feels like to throw a punch because it's like you have power and it's good steward it responsibly. And that was where people, people would grow on the map. Um, but then for people that already know that and already have that in touch, it's like half pockets where, where the productivity and the results just doesn't matter, you know? Um, so <clears throat> and that was like my big fear with writing is writing for a long time was, was a place where I didn't need to be, I didn't need to be a man's man anymore. I could just write. And now I'm actually trying to produce things with writing. Then it's like, I find myself getting more competitive and more like, you know, goal or goal oriented, <laughs> you know? Um, so those are, those are some, those are some starts. And I also think, um, emotional intimacy for men is a good place to start with other men. So, um, one of the things I love about the coaching community is I have never found more men that I respect in their masculine strength. Tell me that they love me. And it's like, I, I don't always flow naturally with that, but I want to. And I don't always, I don't always manifest that for the people around me, but I at least have it as a clear and intentional ideal to be very clear that yes, there are women in my life that I love dearly. And there are men that I love. And I can tell them that freely and safely without being judged as, as saying to another man that I love him somehow as less masculine. Amazing. Thank you so much for that. Um, we do have to start wrapping it up, but I have one final question for you. What does it mean to you to live your most fully expressed life? Yeah. Um, I love that question. Um, I think for me more and more, uh, you know, in the coaching circles, we use the word, the unknown a lot to represent what some people perceive as threat, but other perceive as possibility for me, the term mystery is, uh, is like a more useful and valuable term <clears throat> for me to be totally comfortable with vast amounts of mystery in terms of my own psyche, in terms of relationships with other people, in terms of the future, in terms of my spiritual life, for me to be fully expressed is actually to know far less than I claim and to be okay with it. Mm. And so for me to be fully expressed is to, is to, you know, like, I have no idea how long I'm going to coach people, but I know that I will always show up as a coach. I don't know where my writing is going to go. And it's okay that I don't know that and to be comfortable with it. So for me to be fully expressed is, is to have a lot of times where if people ask me for a specific answer, I can say, I don't know. And that doesn't shift my sense of who I am. So that's what I've got for now. That may change at some point and that's okay. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Yes. That's all part of the answer. So good. Thank you so much, Jeff. This was amazing. Where can people find you, connect with you, follow you, all the things? Yeah. So, uh, on Facebook, it is warrior poet coaching. Um, that is my coaching venture and on Instagram, it's just J Mount coaching. So, um, but also look in the next year or so for a book on the art of pilgrimage, because that's what I've been writing mostly about is, 
uh, travel for the sake of development. So look out for those. And um, I'd love to hear from anybody that'd like to reach out to me. So cool. So cool. Thank you so much, Jeff. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time. Thank you so much for listening to the Fully Expressed Podcast. I'm your host, Christina Roland. If you loved what you listened to today, please leave us a review and share this episode with a friend. Who in your life could benefit from hearing this conversation? I'd be honored if you shared it with them. If you want updates on what I'm doing on podcast episodes, on events I'm hosting, on different coaching opportunities that I have, You can find me on Instagram and TikTok at Stina, S-T-I-N-A, E, and then Roland, R-O-W-L-A-N-D. I post everything on there, quickest way to find out what's going on. Also, I love connecting with you all, so please feel free to send me a message, and let's create this community of fully expressed people in the world. Sending you all love.